0: Good afternoon. This is episode 16 of Fortitude Live, the podcast. I'm your host, Ian the Rhino. And in today's episode, we have our special guest, Brian Carroll. Brian is an elite powerlifter who sustained a very severe back injury circa around 2009, 2010, and went on to rehab this back injury um, and come back to the platform and hit some pretty huge numbers. Uh, this episode was very significant to me, as um, I've experienced a similar back injury recently, uh, triple disc herniations, um, leaving my left net, left leg numb, and my left calf about 50% strength, which is uh, frustrating to say the least. Um, Brian experienced similar. He had a fractured sacrum, two crushed discs, and another fractured vertebra. And he rehabbed this injury without surgery, without going under the knife, just living his life and um, implementing proper posture and good spinal hygiene, as he likes to call it. Um, He worked through this process being mentored by Dr. Stuart McGill, who is a leading uh, expert on back pain. And um, in this episode, we discuss sort of uh, his process through that um, kind of finding out what was wrong figuring out how to work through it some of the uh, anatomy and uh, smaller more fine processes related to back uh, to the to back healing and um, we talk about a little bit of the psychological aspect of it as well um, this episode is brought to you by. Fortitude Sports Performance, yours truly. Um, Check out Fortitude Training for our Fortitude Powerlifting Program and Fortitude 365, our 365-day-a-year-continuously-running GPP General Physical Preparedness Program. It uh, works for anybody, um, tactical athletes, service professions, soccer moms, you name it. Um, anyone looking to uh, stay fit, stay strong, uh, stay conditioned, stay flexible, stay aesthetic, year-round, maintain a constant state of readiness. Fortitude powerlifting is geared towards maximal strength in the big three: squat, bench, deadlift. With the barbell, you will uh, probably not be working as uh, high of a level of conditioning in Fortitude 360 or in Fortitude powerlifting as you will in Fortitude 365. It's just geared more purely towards strength. So check it out. Visit our website at www.fortitudesportsperformance.com. Take a listen to this episode, like, share, subscribe, post it in your story. Um, Tag myself, tag Brian. He gives his Instagram handle in the episode. Without further ado, enjoy. It appeared the damage I had done to my spine was even more significant than I had originally understood. I have seen plenty of bad MRIs before as I had been researching injuries on my own, but the clues hidden in the shadows of my own I had overlooked. I suppose it's much easier to make conclusions and suggestions about other people's issues rather than your own. I knew that my back was bad, but to be honest I was oblivious to the extent of the structural damage until Dr. McGill pointed out the trouble spots in my own images. I knew that jagged edges, flat disks, and black cloudy marks weren't, weren't normal, but beyond that it wasn't until a quick and brilliant tutorial from Dr. McGill that I understood the severity of what I was dealing with. It was a very grim moment for me. I can remember looking at my wife through a fog as I was processing the realization that I've been forcing myself to function with multiple broken bones. This was a moment that I'll never forget. My sacrum was nearly split in half. I knew my discs had issues, but this took things to a whole new level. The first thing I thought about was the fall from 2009, how I fell, where it hurt, and how it's hurt since. Well, fuck. Fuck. That is, uh, that's pretty intense, man. That's, um, that kind of reminds me of, of what it looked like when I saw my MRI personally. And I think that a lot of people, I think, have that same moment where they kind of encounter that scary realization of something seeming a lot, you know, seeming, seeming to, you know, they process the reality, the realization of something, you know, being bad or thinking it's very bad, um everybody. I'm with uh, Brian Carroll right now. Um, He's a pretty elite strength athlete. And that was just an excerpt from his book, The Gift of Injury, The Strength Athlete's Guide to Recovering from Back Injury and Winning Again. Uh, He co-wrote that book with uh, Dr. Stuart McGill. He's a PhD in biomechanics, correct? Um, And uh, Brian had a severe back injury. What year was it?
1: initially i started to fill it in 2009 but it all came to a head in
0: 2013 2013 and um and then he recovered from this injury probably one of the worst ones i've seen in terms of imaging and uh, he recovered from it and since then um he's gone on to hit some pretty extreme lifts but he obviously knows better than i am brian why don't for the audience for those of them that you know don't know who you are why don't you give people a little you know like a Ten minute, fifteen minute, short little uh, background of who you are, where you come from, how you got into strength sports, just so people kind of understand and have context behind what we talk about. Okay. Well, thank you for having me. First of all, I appreciate it. And I
1: started lifting weights in high school. I was a kind of a little guy in eighth grade, going into ninth grade. I was about five foot, hundred pounds, and so I knew that I needed to get bigger. So I started strength training. I was quite undersized and pretty soon I added, added some size and strength and it really carried over in baseball, which was my sport of choice. I immediately started to be able to throw the ball further and harder, hit, hit the ball better, mm-hmm. further, and I just kind of fell in love with weightlifting during high school. Unfortunately, we didn't have a weightlifting team and so I just had to do it you know, at the local health club and then in the gym classes, so I really fell in love with lifting uh, during high school. And then eventually I drifted away from baseball, I played my last baseball game in July of 2000, uh, July of 1999. And right before then I started competing in bench press meets. So I did my first bench press meet in June or May of 1999. And I Good. played my last baseball game in July of 1999. And I pretty much, I knew I could play baseball on a college level, but I just wasn't, I wasn't seeing a, a future in baseball. And I kind of just threw myself at the iron and just started training hard. Mm-hmm. I did a little bit of bodybuilding in between doing bench meets and such. Mm-hmm. 99, 2000, 2001, then 2002. After a couple of years of heavy squats and heavy deadlifts, I started ramping up for my first full power meet, and uh, I did that uh, right around 2002. What you what weight what weight class? What
0: numbers were you hitting for your first meet?
1: So for the first meet that I did in 2000. 2000 uh, March 2003, I lifted at 220. So I walked around at a true 220, like 219, mm. and I went in and I did a 705 squat, a 424 bench, and a 622 deadlift the first time there, which was about a 1752 total. And if you go back to the early 2000s, everyone lifted in gear back then. It was just different variants. I used a poly shirt that you could put on by yourself and mm-hmm. a marathon deadlift suit. I know mm-hmm. somewhere out there Ed Cohn's smiling <laughs> when I say marathon because that was his favorite knee wraps and he <laughs> loved the deadlift suit. And um so I used that and as the gear kind of progressed and lifting went that route for a few years, I just kept lifting and mm-hmm. you know, I lifted at one eighty one and one ninety eight as a teenager. So um since lifting at two twenty and moving up to two forty two Where I totaled 2651. If I back up to 220, I lifted there for a few years up until about 2007, where I squatted 1,030, beating Chuck Vogelpohl's all time world record at 220 at the 2006 November WPC Worlds. And uh, so I lifted there for a while and ended up totaling just under 2,400. And then went up to 242, lifted there for some years, ended up totaling 2651 there for a second biggest total of all time. I, I tried for years to get that. Biggest total of 2,700 at 242, mm-hmm. and I just couldn't quite do it. Mm-hmm. I went up to 275, lifted there, hit an all-time world record of 1,185 squat, mm. beat that. And then that's when my back stuff started happening. Mm-hmm. Now, I did bench over 800 pounds in competition equipped. Mm-hmm. I have pulled over 800. And uh, the the wear on my body was starting to become apparent Mm -hmm. after the big squat of 1185. Now, Mm -hmm. I just hit my biggest total of 2730 at 275 in 2011. Mm -hmm. And I noticed my back from that fall in 2009 would flare up on me at times. Mm -hmm. It would get better. It would, uh, when I would back off from lifting, it would feel better. Then as soon as I started pushing ahead, into 2012 and 13, it really started to get bad. Hmm. And even though I was stronger than ever, I could feel my athleticism starting to slip a little bit. Things that were not painful started to become painful day to day.
0: And then my lifts started to regress backwards. Mm-hmm.
1: So what
0: take us back. You mentioned a fall. What can you take us through that?
1: Yeah. So you opened with me talking about or the, the, the part in the book where mm-hmm. I fell. And what I was doing, I was going to be a police officer in 2009 and I was about 270 or so, and I wanted to make a statement by flying through the course and showing how yeah. super athletic I was. They were
0: probably talking shit about the big guy who couldn't, couldn't run. <laughs> yeah,
1: but I, I, can, I could run and I moved yeah. well, but I, I just, the, the barricade that I had to hop over was um, very slippery from morning July dew. Hmm. So I was the first one on the obstacle course, and as I hopped over it, I slipped and fell right on my ass cheek. And my back Mm. just felt terrible. It locked up on me. I still finished the course, but then I went and walked back to my truck and laid in the parking lot for like 20 minutes Mm. in the front of the police station. And no one came out and helped me and just let me, they watched (laughs) me go to their car and they just carried on. So as soon as I found enough strength and resilience and resolve to get back in my truck, I, I put the seat straight back and turned the air on full blast and hauled ass home And then I slept for a few hours. And then the back back pain kind of wound down over a couple days. Mm. And like any smart and, you know, intelligent strength athlete that has longevity in mind, I went and did my first 800 deadlift a month later and my first (laughs) 1,100-pound squat. And then that ended up being the starting point of my back not feeling good and Mm. cumulatively falling apart on me
0: during this time. Just kind of being on and off.
1: Yeah, and it's it's what a lot of people uh, deal with, and we'll talk about it in a little bit, but there's a reason why people have periods of time where they feel good, and then they get back into back pain, and then it gets worse, and it ramps up, and then it goes away for a little bit, and we'll talk about that, but that was me to a T. I would feel better at times, and I'd say, okay, let's load the bar, and let's go, and then my back would flare up on me again, and I just didn't understand how important spine hygiene was, how important bolstering the core was moving well and such and just being a giving yourself permission not to train heavy all the time Mm. and this is before instagram even existed you know we're talking about the mid-2000s and even in the early 2010s it wasn't really a thing and now you know people are always they always feel like especially if their business is built around their physique Mm. or their lifts or their Mm. athleticism have to be doing something it's in, in the off season traditionally. That's when we're resting. Yeah, we're off the supplements. We're 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 eating looser on the diet. And mm-hmm. We're letting our body recover. But now there's really no off season. So people, yeah. they rely on that for their income. So that there's another monkey wrench that could mm-hmm. potentially keep someone either injured or pick the scab enough where they mm-hmm. end up having a back injury. And uh, the social media wasn't a problem for me. I just lifted in such a
0: competitive gym. Mm-hmm that I always wanted to get after it. Mm -hmm. And so you didn't want to see someone who was weaker than you. You would not want to come back into the gym and have those people out totaling you maybe.
1: Right. Yep. Yep. And the competitive drive, you know, for some people, the competitive drive and pushing Mm -hmm. that can be, um, the difference between them going to the next level or not. It can Mm -hmm. also be the difference in someone getting injured or not. So Mm -hmm. everything, um, everything has potential to either break you or make you better. So I wasn't really selective in the things that I did. And I really didn't ever take into consideration that there were a lot of years to live after powerlifting
0: and I yeah. just didn't care. I think a lot of people that's they're in the here and the now that's, and, and that's a, that's, there's a turning point and a realization that a lot of athletes go through when they kind of, you know, whether you, a lot of them are forced to, you know, like you or I, to, you know, take a step back and you don't really have a choice. And then through that experience, you make that realization. Now, you know, you've, you fell, you kept lifting, you hit some big numbers, but then you started to experience this regression at when was your turning point where you were like something seriously wrong? Like I need to start seeking help. Like I need to start figuring this out and, and which led you to link up with Dr. McGill. So 2012 the, the pain was really ramping up and rolling
1: into 2013 I went and I started doing um nerve root blocks epidurals and facet injections just to try to try anything to wind the pain down the problem was I wasn't removing the cause mm. and the shots and injections would only last but they would only last me for a couple weeks were you still lifting I was still lifting okay. I, I, I did everything wrong pretty much and we document this in gift of injury how how much i deserved my injury for the silly things that i did so i was getting the injections just enough to get me through the arnold 2013 and i got through the squad i squatted 1147 i benched 825 but i couldn't get set up for the deadlift my back was just killing me for the third year in a row at the arnold 2012 2013 um both both of those years um not three but the two years there 2012 and 13 I couldn't even hardly set up to get a to to set up to pull a deadlift so at that point when i could barely pull i think i pulled my second attempt at like a mid seven and, and i needed 800 for the win and i wasn't even close with it i knew that something had to change so i kind of threw out everything that i knew i kind of abandoned the the path that i was going down and reached out to dr mcgill because a client of mine had told me about him i was familiar with his material but like a lot of people out there They think, okay, Dr. McGill method or McGill method. Okay. There's three exercises. You do this and everything's great and you move on. It's not a big deal. The McGill method is um, so much more than the, than the big three exercises. The McGill method is about coming to a precise diagnosis of back injury, removing the cause, and then building pain-free capacity once again, to get back to sport. And, um, so I was naive, like a lot of people are out there about the method. And so even with that said, I still knew that he could be a potential help for me, so I reached out to him in April of 2013. Fast forward a month, I was up there, actually a couple of weeks within talking to him, I was up there in Toronto with my wife, and after reviewing my images when I got to see Dr. McGill, he told me that I'm done, I'm absolutely done, and uh, he said, I can likely get you out of pain, but you have no athleticism left in your back, and... If you continue to lift, um, things could be very bad for you. And if you were my son, I would urge you to retire from lifting and, uh, not load your spine anymore with these crazy weights. So of course I said, well, you said you can get me pain free most likely. And so once, once we get pain free, I looked at my wife and I said, I'm going to lift again. And Mm -hmm. he said, okay, first things first. Let's let's get you out of pain, and then who knows? Maybe you're right. Maybe you end up writing a book about it. Hmm. So that was the day that the <laughs> the the idea started in May first, two thousand thirteen, and the book rolled out October of two thousand seventeen. And uh, you know, I, I I came back. You know, the story. Uh, it, it isn't just like a, a direct route to getting pain free. I had some struggles. I had some hang ups and stuff. But within Two years, I had won the Arnold twice again after seeing Dr. McGill, 100% pain-free, but the process uh, took some time. I had to take some time from lifting. I had to move well, and I had to get away from a lot of bad habits that we see people fall into all mm-hmm. the time, and it was a
0: process. It was simple, but it wasn't very easy. Yeah, so what was your, like, what was your actual diagnosis where we, don't have, we can't show people the MRI, but give them an idea? Yeah, so I had some in-plate fractures, L3, L4, L5, and my
1: sacrum was almost split in half, and that was from probably starting with the fall and then just lots of sloppy movement and lack of recovery when I was lifting heavy, bending the way I moved, flexion under load all the time, not enough recovery. So I had at L5, S1, and uh, I had some retrolysthesis, some shifting of the vertebrae where they're, you know, some people refer it to as a slipped A slipped vertebrae, which kind of Mm -hmm. slides forward or slides back. Mm -hmm. And I had some stenosis, some narrowing there. But the biggest thing was the instability of the base. The foundation of my spine Mm -hmm. was almost broken half. So we had to be very careful. He wasn't so worried about the discs that were bulging or flattened or, you know, my L5 S1, for those Mm -hmm. that see in the book on page 41, you can see pretty much the disc is non-existent in l5s1
0: it looks for those of you that can't see it's like a little it's a little black space which black indicates that there's no fluid there mm-hmm. and the vertebrae above that that l5s1 vertebrae it does not look like a vertebrae it looks like a um it's jagged yeah it's jagged that's bizarre man <laughs> that's crazy So what's even in that dark, like what's even in that dark space? Nothing. (laughs) I have to ask Dr. McGill. Yeah. So it
1: it wasn't good. So I had to retrain myself and and basically I went into the lab clinic training center that he has or had up there at the University of Waterloo. I went in there as a complete beginner and uh, started over, started over with everything. And when I got back to lifting after removing the cause for a few months and, letting my pain wind down and bolstering my core with specialized exercises paired with the walking program, along with moving well every day. I was able to start back lifting, but I started with just the empty bar. Mm-hmm. That was after weeks of doing goblet squats and variations of the squat, mm-hmm. carries, stir the pot, kettlebell swings, those type of things. Mm-hmm. And as soon as I was ready, I got back under the bar and literally started with the bar then I went 65, then I went 95, then I went 115. And I slowly started building back up and uh, gained load tolerance once again because I didn't do well with extension. I didn't do well with compression. I didn't do well with, ex- with uh, flexion either. So I had a lot of pain triggers that we had to wind down and stop picking the scab on. So it was um, it was an interesting process, learning to be patient but I had been broke so bad, like mentally and physically, that I didn't have another choice because I'd tried so many other pathways, and they all failed me.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And the buck stops oops, I just kind of yelled there. The buck stops with me. You know it was it was my choices that I made. so mm-hmm. it was my fault. It wasn't anyone else's fault, so I decided to take responsibility and just make it happen. And the same focus that I used to hit big numbers and lifting and and such. It's the same focus that I used on my rehab every single day, the way I moved, the way I did my core work, the way I walked, I attacked it, I attacked it with the same ferocity and focus as I did previously. And,
0: uh, that was the key. I think what was like your average day, average day, what part of the rehab? Um, like, like, you know, you would, you, what were like the main interventions that you did every day? Like, what were the main changes? So the way I got out of bed, you know, a lot of people like to stretch when they get out of bed because they think it's helping them.
1: Mm. People, when they wake up and they have tight backs, it's generally due to their discs being hydrated in the morning mm. or the way they sleep. If they're floppy and sloppy with them turning over. Mm-hmm. But generally speaking, someone may not have a back injury, but their back doesn't feel great in the morning. Sure. That's due to the discs being a little hyperhydrated. Mm-hmm. You give it an hour or two, it'll dehydrate a little bit. It'll settle. Mm-hmm. So... Um, I stopped stretching my back first thing in the morning Mm -hmm. and I would just let it settle. I'd go to the coffee. I'd I'd get a drink. I'd go for about a 10 minute walk and then I'd start my day. And once I started my day, did some work, I would do a session in the big three. You probably weren't sitting when you were working, right? Not very. I was mixing my sitting and standing as much as possible Mm -hmm. and I would never let myself get into pain. So if Mm -hmm. I felt myself standing for too long, which, um, that's a little bit of compression intolerance. Mm -hmm. So after a a, a bit of standing and I'd feel the pain start to come on, Mm -hmm. I would sit. And then when I'd sit and I'd feel a little bit of pain coming on from the flexion, I would stand up. Mm -hmm. And it just took me time of moving around, mixing, standing, walking, laying, sitting Mm -hmm. Uh, over a period of time, my capacity went up. Mm -hmm. So throughout the day, every couple hours I would go for a walk, I would stand, sit, I would do the big three. I might do um, a couple other uh, variants of the big three um, along with my walks. And as soon as my pain started winding down, which it did over the first couple of days to weeks, because I was such a habitual offender with my movement patterns Mm -hmm. that as soon as I stopped picking the scab and exacerbating the injury, my pain wound down like within Mm -hmm. a couple of days to weeks. So then I was able to progress. And I was able to start doing some suitcase carries Mm -hmm. and stir the pot and things Mm -hmm. like that. But here's the key. The key is I didn't abandon my spine hygiene when I went and started adding things in into phase two, if you will, phase one being removing the cause, stabilizing the core, winding the pain down. And then phase two, you keep those same elements in it, but then you start adding more specialized exercises to bolster the core. I didn't turn my back on the walking And the core work and the pristine spinal hygiene every day that's the key so when i rolled that into the second phase once i uh, became accustomed to that and felt good doing that didn't have any pain then eventually i could roll into phase three but i didn't abandon the stages one and stage two i kept Mm -hmm. that in there as my warm-up as my daily stuff and then I started doing things that resembled the competition lifts more mm-hmm. i would do squats to a box i would do deadlifts off of a block or a box mm-hmm. and then eventually after enough time without setbacks then i started lowering the the depth down mm-hmm. lowering the bar down to the floor then eventually i got back to competition spec lifts
0: interesting so so i think one of the key components in there is just to get down into a little bit of the nitty-gritty, and we won't, we won't go so far as to butcher it because we're just a couple of meatheads sitting here, but um, we're, we're no uh, PhD-level uh, experts, but um, to get down to the, into the nitty-gritty a little bit, when you had caused whatever trauma you had caused to those structures down there, they, the tissue tolerance was extremely low and there were certain positions that if you got in those positions they would predispose those structures to be put in a position which would exacerbate whatever damage was there because those positions were what caused the damage in the first place now by avoiding the pain and you know doing the spine hygiene like you reco- like you talk about and walking creating movement like the low intensity movement is not enough to exacerbate the injury but it's enough to create blood flow now, these structures, you know, the structures of your vertebrae, your discs, um, you know, the fascia, the joints down there, they're very avascular structures. So the, the blood flow is not the same as muscle tissue. Muscle tissue recovers very quickly because it's very vascular. Things heal be, uh, quickly in muscle tissue because there's lots of blood nutrients flowing through there. That's not the same case, you know, and the tissue, the, the, the cells themselves respond quicker that's not the same case with say the annulus of a disc, the, the collagen fibers of a disc, you know, um, the, the bone, the bony structure of a vertebrae. So, you know, depending on the nature of someone's injury, you know, different things are going to exacerbate their, their injury or put them in pain or exacerbate a, a disc bulge. Now, um, one of the interesting things you said to me was in relation to an MRI. We were talking in the garage about um imaging in an MRI and you know you said you're not your MRI. And you know going a little bit forward from that, you know we made a, you made a point about how the MRI only takes a snapshot of what your spine looks like when you are laying down. It doesn't take a snapshot of what it looks like when you're standing, when you're in flexion, when you're not in flexion, when you're extension, when you're in all of these different positions, and dynamically when you are moving around, it's possible for the mechanics of that of that small of that area in your lower back and your lumbar spine to change based on your position and exacerbate pain and not exacerbate pain. And a bulge can be exacerbated when you're in flexion. When you're in, a, in an MRI, you're not in flexion. So you can look at an MRI and be like, oh, it's only showing one herniation, but I'm in so much pain or someone who's showing a big herniation when they are in, an MRI, in their MRI who's not in that much pain. Like in my case, it it's not... To say that how your what your MRI shows is how you are all the time. It's just how you are when you're laying down in that position. And that was something that I had never really thought about and something that I thought was really, really interesting because it could potentially look completely different if you were to be in a position that provokes your pain. And hypothetically, theoretically, stay in that position for 30 minutes and have an MRI scan done, your MRI and your discs might look completely different. And so, you know, there's no way to know exactly, you know, exactly what structure is causing the pain and why. Because you aren't able to get a live MRI done of, you know, that part of your body during your daily life when you're doing all these movements that could potentially provoke your pain. Um, So, you know, in, in discussing and talking about your process throughout the day and kind of how you attack this problem, you're basically taking an, an assessment approach and more of a creative approach to, you know, fundamentally alter your mechanics to where you're avoiding positions that stress the weak points in your structure and by not stressing those weak points in your structure 5 10 20 times a day you know which equates to you know if you're constantly provoking the pain um, picking the scab as the term you like to use you're not constantly provoking those weak points where the tissue tolerance is very low you are allowing your body the time to slowly heal those structures over time now um, this is the approach of delayed gratification when you are allowing your body to heal something that is capable of healing. There are a lot of people that are, you know, a lot of doctors, a lot of people that are big proponents of surgery. And I think that for me personally, that's been kind of the big learning process in understanding. The different, the nature of these different treatment approaches, as I've had in my own injury, in talking to all the people and talk that I've spoken to, and talking to you, you know, I've kind of come to the incl- the conclusion that you know, when I've dumbed down all the complicated stuff and you know, sometimes uncomplicated stuff that people have told me, surgery, when it comes down to it, is ultimately the instant gratification approach to temporarily fix an issue. That is going to usually, in a lot of cases, not in all cases, but in a lot of cases, lead to further issues down the road because someone is going there and physically altering a structure that is not given a chance to heal. And when you physically alter a structure... By an outside exogenous method, you're changing things more than they are meant to be changed, creating scar tissue, potentially removing a disc, removing part of a disc, leaving a partial disc or even no disc left behind, you know, fusing structures that's not necessarily meant to happen biologically. And so you're opening up a realm of things that can happen down the road, potentially, oftentimes in a lot of cases with some people, Whereas if you understood that your body is capable of healing these things, just like it's capable of healing a cut, healing a torn muscle, it might take a little bit longer. But obviously, as in your case, that's probably one of the most extreme examples I've seen. It's capable of happening. You know, you had all, what looks like no disc in these spaces, and then you show a repeat MRI, and you're showing clearly, you know, invertible interver- height and space there, with a nucleus, with an annulus, you know, and it's not, it's not perfect, you know, but it's there and there's substance and you're pain free now, you know? And so I think like a lot of people take this as almost like a death sentence when it comes to, you know, their quality of life, their lifting career, their athletic career, et cetera. Um, and it's really not, it's just, they get told that by so many doctors because, you know, Simply due to the fact I think that most people lack the discipline to follow a boring rehab program for a long period of time. Now that was a lot of stuff I just said, but <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I, I, I that was that's kind of been my take on it, and and I think that um, I just it, it's been a very interesting process for me to kind of go through kind of figuring this out, talking to you about it and kind of synthesizing all of this information, because there's a, there's a lot of people that are battling this. And the thing is, you know, at the end of the day, this is a, it's a, the nature of this injury is it heals slowly and it heals slowly because not only because the structure itself is naturally not going to heal very quick, like muscle tissue, but also it's very hard to not use that area in a way that's going to provoke it. It's just, it's hard to move in a way. It's challenging and it's hard to move in a way to where you're not constantly provoking it and you're not constantly aggravating it. If you are, if you're bending in a way, if if you're flexion intolerant, you're going into flexion 10, 20 times a day, maybe you have a kid and you keep picking them up and you know keep doing things even small things that are causing damage then that injury potential if you if you are if you're flexion intolerant if you can't bend over if if you get hurt from sitting and your job requires you to sit 10 hours a day no it's not capable of healing because you're never allowing it the time to not be you know, to not be damaged enough, you're not allowing it the time to actually heal and rebuild and lay that, lay that, um, those, you know, collagen fibers to strengthen that annulus to make the nucleus migrate back into place. Um, so I think that's key. That's, that's, it's, uh, it's been an interesting process to kind of like synthesize all that information and come to that realization. Um, thoughts. That's a lot. You, you summed up the the entire process. <laughs> you, you summed
1: it up very well. I, I I think that's a good way that you put it. Um, a lot of people they are they're impatient and they they think there's a quick fix or magic bullet, whether it be diet, training, uh, rehab. There, there's no such thing as a magic bullet, and people think that oh, I'm going to do this stretch, I'm going to do this program, you know, and I'm going to be pain free. It's a process, you know, and um, you know, back surgery. A lot of the time is uh, is not, it should be a last resort uh, a lot of the time. And um, people can beat their back pain a lot of the time without surgery when they go to someone that knows how to do a proper assessment. There's uh, probably five or six maybe McGill Certified Practitioners in the United mm-hmm. States and there's a couple master clinicians. I think there's five master clinicians and maybe six Certified Practitioners. And a, a master clinician is actually, they are prepared to to have the most complicated cases. And they usually have a PhD in biomechanics or they're a chiropractor themselves that have really dedicated themselves to the McGill method. And I'm working on getting to that level. But I deal with mostly lifting injuries. And the most common lifting injuries is compression, flexion, and extension intolerance, in plate fractures, and disc bulges very common in what we do. And it's because typically the person that, that I have reach out to me is I was squatting about 500 pounds or deadlifting about 500 pounds. I got my form loose. Mm. It hurt. I knew I should have shut it down, but I did one more rep or one more set. Or
0: they finished the rep. They finished the rep and then they're, they're
1: bedridden for the next two weeks. And then they go into the, the Americanized medicine system of, They go to their general practitioner who has 15 minutes to spend with them. Mm. And, of course, they give them pain meds and they'll escalate them. They won't be able to give them too much information because they're not trained in an assessment. They're trained to treat things with medicine. Mm. Um, Unfortunately, just think of the the paradigm shift if... They're also trained to make money. Yeah. (laughs) And and they don't have two hours to spend with you. So Mm. just think of... These these doctors, you know, we're not even talking about the physical therapist, but a doctor could just take a course and assess posture and say, well, what causes your pain? Okay, well, the, the, the bending forward causes you pain. Well, when I walked in the room just now, you were bent over looking at your phone, and that's exactly what you're describing to me causes your pain. Stop doing that. Let's work on your posture for a couple minutes. Here's some ibuprofen. Work on doing that. Stop doing the things that hurt you. Come see me in two weeks, and then we'll talk again. But instead, it doesn't go that way. Once they don't get better after seeing the doctor, they get scheduled for a a physical therapist or a chiropractor, an MRI. Then it escalates from there. They don't get better. They get pain management, uh, whether it be injections, pain pills, and stuff. They never address the cause, and that's the problem. All this stuff can be tools. Even even though I'm not a big fan of the, the injections, nerve root block, epidural, Facet injections, whatever it may be, um, they can help. But you've got to remove the cause. Even the surgery, you still have to rehab after you get surgery. So some people, they're going to get surgery regardless. They mm-hmm. may not need it. They might not need it. But the problem lies when they get surgery and they're not given specific protocols, correct mm-hmm. protocols on how to rehab after surgery. Mm-hmm. And so, what happens? The disc, bulge, they have a disc bulge below and above mm. after they get the one p- repaired, and they have to go back in mm, for another that's, one. That's why people, when they don't change their postures, when they don't address the cause and bolster their core when necessary, and learn how to use their hips in a neutral spine, that's why they keep going back for more surgeries, more mm. injections. They're always in physical therapy because they're not being told how to control their pain. They're not being told that. They can wind their pain down. They just have shitty training methods. They've got they've got bad training methods, and they listen to people that just don't they don't understand the spine. And here here's something that people um, don't think about: the spine is not a ball and socket joint. It's not a ball and socket. The shoulders and the hips are made to create movement. The muscles that run off the spine are made to prevent movement. It's like a guy wire system like a bridge that runs down a suspension bridge is very stable when you create it that way, but it's not meant to start movement. Mm -hmm. Those discs are not meant to be strong and bendable. You can Mm -hmm. tune them to be very flexible and you can tend them to be very stiff. So a gymnast, a dancer, a ballerina, think of them as like a willow branch. Mm -hmm. Now they can bend, they can move in the wind. If a hurricane comes, they're fine. A powerlifter or strongman is an oak tree. You load them up, they're fine. But what happens in a hurricane with an oak tree? Mm. The wind starts coming and that thing snaps. But Mm. you can load a whole bunch of weight on a powerlifter or oak tree and they're fine. When you try to make a ballerina strong, you break them. Mm. When you try to make a powerlifter flexible, you break them. Mm. So that's the key. And a lot of people don't have this basic foundational knowledge like I didn't eight years ago. I didn't understand that the back isn't a ball and socket. I just thought I could just bend it forever and not mm-hmm. have any repercussions. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, I'm bending it in flexion. I'm bending it in extension. Then I'm trying to load it mm-hmm. with you know 1,200 pounds and such. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't understand. It's so unfair that my back hurts. It's so unfair. Yeah. Somewhere along the way, I think people have forgotten that there are prices to pay. There's no free passes. When you mm-hmm. lift heavy weights, there's going to be repercussions to it. People that play football in the NFL, there's going to be repercussions to Mm -hmm. it. You do CrossFit, you do powerlifting, you do Mm -hmm. strongman at a high level, there's going to be repercussions to it. Uh, I'm not saying that you can powerlift forever and not have uh, injuries. I'm not saying that at all. But there are ways to invest invest in your body and mitigate damage. Mm -hmm. And that's what we're talking about today with the spine. There are ways to to train it in ways that will bolster it and not detract from the athleticism. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that's what my mission is right now too. Uh, since I've stepped away from powerlifting as of, as of last year, I'm focusing on my business. You know, I'm a, the McGill provider for Florida. So I see clients a lot. I do online consults with them. And so that's my mission now is to help as many people as possible and uh, help them learn from some of my mistakes. Cause yes, I do see people, and I help them beat their back injury, get them back to training, whether it be strongmen or CrossFit or powerlifters or just average Joes, but ideally, if they read Gift of Injury, they read Back Mechanic, they read 1020 Life, ideally, they won't hurt themselves. They'll take the principles and the foundational, uh, the cornerstone principles that I have in the book, and they'll avoid back injury. Hopefully, that's that's ideally what I want to do, is to create awareness for people that You know, you can avoid the same mistakes I have, but if you have been injured, there are ways that you can beat it. And here's some ways that you you can do it, you know, yourself. And Back Mechanic, Stu McGill's book that was released in 2015, that book tells you how to go through the assessment, how to identify your causes, and how to start building pain-free capacity once again and moving towards a pain-free lifestyle. Gift of Injury takes the ball from there and shows you how to rebuild into getting competitive again, and the stages that go from just getting pain-free and having athleticism to carrying that athleticism back over to the platform and what we had to do. So we basically took the
0: components of back mechanic, applied them to me, and told the whole story through Gift of Injury. Hmm, Interesting. So basically, from start to finish, when someone has a back injury, maybe they go get imaging to at least get an idea of, um, you know, if it was the average person and they bugged their back, like, like what, I guess that's a good way to go. So say if, say if the average person listening, they've bugged their back and, um, and they're not sure what to do. Like, what would you recommend they do starting out? Okay. So let's say they,
1: they tweaked their back, picking up their baby out of the crib mm-hmm. and it's bothered them. Let's say they have a flare up every couple of years, which is common for mm-hmm. people, um i would have them do very little they Mm -hmm. can try laying on their stomach when their Mm -hmm. back flares up and just let it settle there for a couple minutes Mm -hmm. if it feels better that's a good position for them Mm -hmm. going on a walk is very invasive Mm -hmm. uh, non-invasive it's natural traction for the spine Mm -hmm. a lot of the time that'll help it settle but not stretching it Mm -hmm. not training through it that's probably the best advice i can give you just let it settle give it time And the pain will wind down and desensitize. But if you Mm -hmm. keep striking that nerve and winding it up and and recreating the injury over and over, it's going to come back worse and worse and worse. But simply removing the cause, using your hips, learning how to use your hips in a way that spares your back, not your knees either. Now, I know that you know using Mm -hmm. your hips is important as a Mm -hmm. top powerlifter and crossfitter. But a lot of people think that, oh, I use my knees. No, it's using your hips Mm -hmm. because you just where your knees at if you're shearing on them all the time. So Mm -hmm. you use your hips instead of your lumbar spine, Mm -hmm. lock your core in and and use that movement. Now we use the the lunge pattern, the golfers pickup pattern, the squat pattern. Those are ways that we move around the pain triggers for an athlete, especially, and they wind their pain down. But a lot of the time, less is more. If someone has a really bad back injury or a back tweak, just let it rest for a little while. Mm -hmm. Don't, don't panic. But sure as heck, don't
0: go and start stretching it mm-hmm. and, and do things that are going to wind the pain up. Um, Just leave it be. Walk. Be real easy on it. You know, don't lift. Don't exacerbate it. That's interesting. You said, you know, walking is such a simple activity. But ironically, it's such a effective rehab tool and restorative tool when it comes to recovery. Um, a lot of my athletes that I work with when it comes to training – they say, "What do you want me to do on my off days?" And I say, oh, "Go on like a couple fifteen minute walks, get like five ten thousand steps. You'll feel much better afterwards." And interestingly enough, like through the through my whole powerlifting, you know, strength training journey, I learned how beneficial walking is to health, to wellness, and to injury rehab of all things, because it's it's literally such a low intensity activity that provides. A very very subtle stimulus on that area that it's almost like a low it's like it's a it's a very very it's a regressed rehab tool in a way is what it seems like you know you mentioned it's a natural traction on your spine um what do you mean by that like a natural so Stu calls it nature's backbomb just going out for a walk and letting
1: gravity do its thing mm-hmm. and just tractioning with walking out there, not doing things like the inversion table or mm-hmm. hanging upside down, which can be beneficial, but start with the least effective dose, the least effective mm-hmm. um, a, amount, and then you can build up from there. Mm-hmm. But if going for a walk is going to help settle your back pain, don't mm-hmm. go and buy an inversion table Yeah, because bigger guys, and I experienced it myself, trying to hang upside down or partially upside down from an inversion table. It's hanging, too much. It's too much. Yeah. I'm too big of a guy that's too much distraction too much traction for me yeah. and uh, I just didn't do well with it. And I felt like my back was broken when I'd get, get off of the day yeah.
0: inversion tables so cause more harm than good. Yep. So the, so there's a very, when you have a back injury, the key in understanding is that there's a very, very low threshold when it comes to the tissue tolerance of whatever your injury is. And you have to perform, you have to do movement at a level like a, The only way a level is uh, a movement is restorative and beneficial to that spot is if the stimulus is below the threshold that the injury is capable of. So, in this case, and a lot of cases with injuries. You know, maybe you can't go into flexion. You can't pick something up off the floor. Maybe you can't. Uh, maybe you can't go into extension. But just standing and walking around is enough movement that the stimulus is such a low intensity that it's not going to provoke the injury, but it's going to provide a little subtle stimulus to ease you in the right direction and promote healing. Yep. Um, you know, and it's also healthy for you in a gazillion other ways. Um, you know, and then eventually, once the pain lessens enough, then you can start introducing a little bit by little bit by little bit. Um, at what point would you start introducing a little bit of load?
1: Um, so we're still talking about the person that's been tweaked,
0: yeah, like maybe they've maybe they've been taking it easy for a while and, um, you know and they're not really experiencing as much pain anymore maybe they're starting to get some some freedom of movement again yeah. um you know what what would be like a couple of exercises or maybe like how would they start to load again
1: um well it, really there's there's some quite variables there but of let's course. say they they want to get back to lifting weights again mm-hmm. and 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 such so building their walking program making sure they're doing Good bolstering core exercises, keeping the the cause removed, and then eventually gradually start introducing more load. Maybe kettlebell work, dumbbell work, and then they have to remain pain free during this time. And each time,
0: like a light goblet squat a or light something, light
1: goblet squat, and just slowly add in more weight, more volume, more intensity. If they have a setback, you back off a little bit, let it settle, then reintroduce load. But usually I like people to be pain-free pain for a couple of weeks, completely pain-free before I start adding in any type of load. And the first thing that I like to add in for some people might be a front push-up plank. It's a little bit of load for them that teaches them to keep their core nice and neutral, or squeeze their glutes. We might do some clamshells or some glute bridges, um, progressions of the big three once we've introduced those. Um, and then I like to do suitcase carries, like a light suitcase carry. Go for a walk for about 20 yards, lock in the core, post down, make sure everything's locked in, and uh, going for a walk, and that slowly introduces a little bit of load for them. Mm-hmm. And then eventually, maybe add in a, a bottoms up variation of that, mm-hmm. maybe some farmers walks, uh, going heavier, going further, and then we start looking at what their goals are. What 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 is their absolute goal? Are they a strong man? Are they a fireman? Are they trying to be a police officer they a power lifter? so mm-hmm. then we'll start fine-tuning their goals to um, help them get back on that path for instance mm-hmm. if we're working with a gymnast mm-hmm. we're not going to get her to start loading up a bunch of squats and stuff because mm-hmm. that just isn't going to be the goal for her no we might have her do some squats getting back to introducing load again but Mm-hmm. We, we want to look at what the end goal is. So we'll start There's a
0: point where you diverge towards their specificity. Yes. Mm-hmm.
1: Yes. And and it's going to depend on how bad their injury is. It might be sooner than later for someone versus someone that's been dealing with a chronic injury for a very long time. It might be a process of five or six months before the pain is wound down mm-hmm. and they're actually able to get through, you know, mm-hmm. a, a light workout of just core work and walking. Mm-hmm. It, everyone's so different in how they respond, but yeah. You know, I mentioned this earlier, too, when we were going through the assessment and discussing. You know, there's three things that I look at. And, you know, Stu McGill might slap my hand and say, there's a lot more than that. But this is what I've been saying. So Mm -hmm. he can correct me if he wants to. There's three things that we look at. The first thing is your genetics, who your parents are. That's how you're going to respond to injury and recovery.
0: Like how how fast you heal, how How well you you heal. heal.
1: Your genetics, of course. Your luck. Your luck and the positions you put yourself in to be lucky. Mm -hmm. And that's adherence to the program. So, People that adhere, they don't just start throwing in random stuff all the time because they see the next thing on Instagram or mm-hmm. they like to see the, the people with the most followers on YouTube. And that can be problematic in a few different reasons. One being that if someone has so much time to market themselves on YouTube to be a zillion followers, how much time are they actually working on hunting their craft? That's something that you got to think about, too. Uh, I'm not saying that people can't be popular and really good at what they do. But a lot of the time, it's all in the marketing, and they have no substance of what they're telling you. Or they're simply just regurgitating other people's things, and they're not actually telling you the correct way of doing it. It's just what they've been able to interpret. So be careful of who you listen to, and and take one plan, take someone's advice, and follow it. When you try to mix too many different components at one time, you're not going to know what works and what doesn't. Hmm. That's why when we progress somebody, and you mentioned the person earlier is going to get back to lifting from the the bending injury. You add one variable at a time. So let's say after we do the walking and the middle of big three, we add in some suitcase carries or push-ups or pull-ups or something. Mm-hmm. We know if she starts or he he or she starts having a little bit of a flare-up, and we've looked at their movement patterns. We make sure they're doing the big three correctly maybe they're just not stable enough to start doing pull-ups or push-ups yet. So we back it off a little bit. Maybe we have them do less of them at first Mm -hmm. and then, okay, that was what we were missing. And then we progress forward more. Mm -hmm. And then every time, every once in a while might be two steps forward, one step back, Mm -hmm. we make a lesson, we make a note, Mm -hmm. then we progress. But Mm -hmm. every exercise is a tool Mm -hmm. and the, the use of the tool might be inappropriate at the time. Sure. But then eventually you shelve it and then you can pull it back out later. Mm -hmm. But One tool for you might be the difference between a world record total or not, or not. One tool for me could be the difference in me being career ended or not. Every tool, depending on how it's used and when it's used, can be good or bad. So I don't like to say things are like the reverse hyper is so bad. But Mm -hmm. depending on your your pain triggers, it could wind your pain way up. Mm -hmm. Now, people that say reverse hyper is one size cure all fits all. It'll fix Mm -hmm. your back pain. It's very situational. They don't understand pain mechanisms and pain generators. Mm -hmm. Um, Someone with a compressed spine, someone that wants to build their posterior chain. That's great. Averse hyper when done properly Mm. and not swinging it around is probably a very good posterior chain builder, but someone that's susceptible with movement under load, flexion and extension, Mm. it may not be good. And if they have a disc bulge, it could be making their disc bulge worse. Mm -hmm. Now, to the people that jump off the reverse hyper and say that feels really good and they love doing it, if that feel good, that sensation doesn't stay with you for hours at a time and you feel worse, that means you're just picking the scab and you're getting a little bit of an analgesic from the stretch reflex that you have. It's like stretching. A lot of time people feel good when they stretch. But then 15, 20, 30 minutes later, they go back tighter and they wonder why they feel so bad. So you have the typical physical therapy exercises. When someone has a disc bulge, they send them and they start pulling their knee to their chest. They start touching their toes Mm -hmm. and it feels good. They're gaining range of motion, quote Mm -hmm. unquote. They feel better than when they get in their car to go home and they get out. They feel like they've been stepped on by an elephant. Mm -hmm. That's because they are recreating their injury over and over and they just don't even know it.
0: That's interesting. That's interesting to think about because I think most people, well, I think, and it's not, I don't think it's a lot of, you know, it's people's fault per se that they're not necessarily educated enough to understand that. But I think that most people don't simply understand that back injuries, it's not like there's one category. It's not like there's a one size fits all. I mean, just listening to you talk there. It's like there's, there's, you have an injury because of compression. You can have an injury because of extension. You can have an injury because of flexion. You can have an, all the, all these different nuances that affect what movement is going to recreate the conditions of that injury. And so the nature of rehab essentially becomes avoiding the movement that recreates that injury. Because if you, if you don't, if you avoid the movement that recreates that injury, then you're not, you're not, you're not exposing yourself to that negative stimulus and you give yourself time to actually heal you know over over a course of you know weeks months etc and so when it comes to the reverse hyper you know maybe if you have strictly a compression oriented injury, if you're a big guy and you're heavy and you're constantly under load and you, you know, you have a disc or a pain issue related to just pure compression, then decompressing and like traction and and, uh, distraction from a piece of equipment like that could easily help you. I mean, I I was talking to to Dan, like maybe a couple, like a month or two before the U S open. And he said that he had bulged a couple of discs and then he hopped on the reverse hyper and he felt great afterwards. And the, the the guy he saw was like, wow, I've never seen a couple of discs go back into place as quickly as yours did. Mm-hmm. And he's like, yeah, I just hopped on that like a few times a week and, and I felt great. But if I hop on it right now, it doesn't feel good. It feels bad because mine are flexion related. Yep. And so I have, you know, whereas his were probably cause he's so damn heavy and squats so damn much that he's just creating so much pressure that the pressure is pushing, you know, is pushing the back of the annulus out. Whereas mine is probably because, you know, of the flexion. And so, you know, the back of the annulus of my discs has simply just gotten too lax. And so repeatedly going into flexion is probably not encouraging them to stiffen back up again. It's just encouraging more laxity, you know? So you got to, it's not a one size fits all. You got to think about your injury in terms of what created the pain in the first place And you got to avoid doing that thing, to it long enough to where it can recover and heal up. Yep. Um, That's why the precise diagnosis mm -hmm.
1: and knowing your pain triggers is so important. So Mm -hmm. I did a, I did a quick video the other day talking about, um, basically when people say that anything is a one, one size fits all cure all when they just say, do McKenzie press ups, Mm -hmm. do this stretch, Mm -hmm. do the reverse hyper automatically when they don't know what your pain triggers are and they haven't assessed you Mm. when they start making recommendations like that, that means that they, they don't understand the process and it might be a good idea to, to start looking elsewhere, or at least have a deeper conversation with them because press-ups just like the reverse hyper press-ups for some people are great, but if they're extension intolerant and they're doing a bunch of press-ups, it's going to really wind them up in some cases. Mm -hmm. And that's why, it isn't going to be a blanket prescription for everybody. It's so important mm. to make sure that it's custom to their needs. So when when I put the book out, a lot of people are trying to follow exactly what I did. They're like, well, what did you do during this time? What mm. did you do during this, you know, two week time where you didn't document, you know, I, I just stayed status quo and probably didn't do anything else other yeah. than what you see, but you can't just follow what my program Mm -hmm. is because mine was specific Mm -hmm. and hopefully, and in most cases your back injury wasn't as bad as mine. Yeah. So I just had to give myself permission to take time off, to relax, to, Mm. to take one thing at a time and first get pain free and then worry about lifting again. I think everyone's always looking at, okay, so what can I do now? What should I do next? It's wind your pain down. and, And Stu said it to me like this, You have to earn the right to lift again, Mm. earn the right to lift again. And when Mm. you say that to people, they're like, what do you mean I have to earn the right? And I hit on this a minute ago. People think that they just have this unlimited, um, get out of jail free card (laughs) where they can just lift heavy and they deserve to lift heavy. You know, people are on the internet crying all the time about my shoulder. I can't bench anymore. My shoulders are worn out and my, you know, my knees. And it's like your, your body is a limited resource. If Mm -hmm. you don't take care of it, if you have a little bit of bad luck, if you have a little bit of bad genetics, you're not guaranteed any type of time in the sport. That's mm-hmm. the thing. You see someone like Bo Jackson that only lasted four years in <laughs> football and baseball, and everyone says, what could have been? What could have been if he yeah. didn't have his hip ripped out of the socket? Yeah. But that's just one of the things. No one is guaranteed mm-hmm. a 20-year career. Like, you know, name the people that you see that just last forever. LeBron James. Vince Carter, you know, in basketball, you know, you have people like Peyton Manning and Tom Brady in football that just last forever. Mm. No one's guaranteed to have that time. And people, I think, are a little bit spoiled when they just think that, oh, I should be,
0: I'm going to do this yeah. forever. I, I also don't think people are getting the same amount of, uh, financial investment into their bodies as though those athletes yeah, are that's
1: true. That's very there, true. there's a
0: lot of uh, there's a lot of new biological technology that's probably going into keeping those guys looking like they're 25 when they're 40 yeah what do you, what do you think tom brady takes <laughs> oh man he's he's his his cells probably replicate like once every year <laughs> he's probably he's probably has a new body every year <laughs> I, I
1: saw him uh at UFC was just in Jacksonville about two months ago, mm-hmm. and I did Octagon Security, so I was standing right in front of I think of, I saw
0: a picture of that, yeah.
1: So I was standing right in front of him, Tebow, Megan Fox, MGK, and then a couple other people right there. But Tom, Tom looks like he was about half the size of Tebow. Now, Tebow was – we know yeah. now he was getting ready to play tight end for Jacksonville, yeah. but he looked humongous, and Tom Brady just looked like – he dude. looked like a vegan. Yeah. He looked like a vegan. His yeah. skin looked that color – a little it's bit crazy. green, and he just, is he vegan? I think so. Yeah, he's, if he isn't vegan, his body looks like he's vegan. He
0: definitely is very like thin and like I don't maybe I would use the word gaunt. He's gaunt and dainty. Yeah, yeah, yeah he's very thin. Yeah, wow, that's bizarre. What a what a what a lineup right there. Tin <laughs> Tivo, Megan Fox, Machine Gun <laughs> you got you got Jesus, you got Super Bowl winner, and you got freaking all sorts of drugs. Yes. Yeah, you got
1: Rap Devil. Got oh, rap devil, and You got Tim, Tim Tebow over there on the end. But, man, Tim stuck out with his size. I'd seen yeah. him multiple times over the years, and he looked humongous. And I was yeah. like, what is he getting ready for? Then the next week, it, you know, he got signed for a tight end position with the Jaguars. But Brady was super cool and nice. Antonio Brown was there. Of course, uh, Jake Paul was there. And, and my sole job for that weekend was to – or for that night – about five hours before the main event, they came up to me, the, the security people, and said, Jake Paul and Antonio Brown and a few people are going to be sitting in this front row. Your job for the rest of the night is make sure that if Masvidal wins, they don't jump in and try to get knocked octagon." <laughs> so I was ready to uh, make sure that Antonio Brown and Jake Paul did not get into the octagon. So Damn. Masvidal got knocked out, and yeah. we didn't have to worry about that.
0: Damn, that's hilarious. Now... To kind of rewind for a second, you mentioned what do I think? What do I think Tom Brady's doing? I think they're all doing a bunch of stem cells every day. Not every day, but periodically. And only I only say that because I also see a lot of the UFC guys doing that, and I see a lot of them doing it um, IV. Uh, you know, localized injections. Have you? What's your? If you have a take, what is it on that? And. I don't know if you, you know if you know what Stu thinks about it, um, I'd be curious to hear you guys' thought, thoughts and opinions on that. if you can speak for him. I'm sure he has a, he would have a lot to say on it if he were here Yeah, he, he, I'm sure he'd have a, he he's, he's they're working on some stuff right now.
1: It's just nothing's really set in stone, but mm-hmm. we know that stem cells and PRP work in the ball and socket joints great mm-hmm. and, and for muscle tissue and such. Mm-hmm. For hair restoration, the PRP, it, it works well. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's still to be determined with still the very new, yeah. yeah. So they're working on um, compounds like stem cells and PRP in the discs, along with other disc seal like uh, procedures where they put fibrin in the discs. Mm-hmm. But uh, it's kind of it remains to be seen. There's some doctors out in Arizona that do the the disc seal process that one of my clients is looking at dealing with we doing because he has an annular tear mm-hmm. similar to what you have. Yeah, L4, L5, I have an annular tear. And he's, and those are sometimes hard to heal. Um, and, you know, we talked about earlier, the reason why those are hard to heal is because we have the, the people that are outside of the MRI machine that can create their injury, but while they're in the MRI machine, their spine looks pretty good. Well, Stu, during his research had people lifting under fluoro, and they would see the the different changes in their disc height and their bulge being created. They He actually filmed someone bulging a disc under load during one of the sessions, and he oh, filmed shit. it. He saw how it did and everything. He would have people lay in an MRI machine. They'd be supine, and then they'd get out, and they'd be under fluoro, and he'd have them bend, and they would see the the injury be created, and then they'd go back to neutral, and it wouldn't be there anymore. Weird. So... Yeah, that, that stuff is very interesting. Um, but as far as the, the procedures and stuff, I, I don't know a great deal about. Mm-hmm. I have had PRP done. I, I, I don't know how much yeah. it's worked, but I know enough people that swear by it. Seems um, like it's hit or miss. And then, you know, we've seen people go into Panama to get the stem cells too, mm-hmm. right? Because yeah. they are they do things a little bit different there. They have a little more of freedom, freedom. Yeah. and a license to be a little bit more aggressive there. So that's what... It seems like people are getting done. I've seen people get it done on their back. I've seen people get it done on their,
0: of course, their hips and shoulders mm-hmm. and knees are really common. It seems like that's pretty effective. When I know a lot of people who have avoided shoulder surgery and gotten stem cells in their shoulder instead. The um, the, the I know that Costa Rica, uh, Colombia, Panama, a lot of those Latin American countries have a little bit more freedom to... Um, to utilize these products because the FDA is regulating them a little bit heavier here in the, in the U S and, and don't quote me on this, but I believe it's in relation to the argument is that whenever you take it and you, you can take it and you can remove it from your body and you can inject it into another part of your body because you're just giving back something to yourself. That's already yours. But whenever you take and isolate these stem cells from like umbilical cord tissue or blood, then it technically is a drug and you're giving someone a drug. And that drug or that medicine or that medication is not regulated. And therefore, you know, you can't do that in the U.S. But I guess in these other countries, their laws are a little bit looser. They allow, you know, they allow this experimental treatment. They give people a little bit more freedom with it which is very, very interesting because I guess the um, science does not totally understand the process and how this works yet. But, uh, you know, there is a lot of, there is a pretty substantial amount of evidence and anecdotal information, you know, of people that are, you know, experiencing very increased healing times, you know, injuries are healing very well, um, you know, and some people aren't. So if some people are, and some people aren't, and there's obviously an intangible unknown variable there that science doesn't know yet, and that's what they're trying to figure out, but um, I'm actually, I'm I'm low-key considering it, I'm like 50-50 on it, just, just because, like, I don't know, you know, we don't know, how long it's going to take before you know before I see you know potential improvement with a, a conservative rehab protocol? So I've I've been like low key doing the research and looking into it and like considering if I want to take that big of a chunk out of my bank account mm-hmm. for for the potential risk of it not really doing much. You know, it's like it's a gamble essentially is what it is. You're just gambling. You know, I, I would wait and see. You yeah. know,
1: so so far, you want to talk a little bit about what we did earlier? Sure, yeah. So we did a bit of an assessment earlier and uh, put together a program. So for, for Ian, over the next couple of weeks, we're just going to have him do a, a walking program. He's mm-hmm. not going to sit in the pain right now, his limits, anywhere
0: from, what is it, 15, t- 10, 15 minutes? Yeah, roughly. Just depends on the position. I'm kind of, uh, I'm kind of breaking that rule right now doing the podcast. <laughs> Doesn't I feel all right right now. But yeah, like a short period of time. We went over the big
1: three, which we have a video of that we'll post up. And we talked about the little nuances that are important to master those movements mm-hmm. and to get the most out of them. Um, so, the big three, he's gonna be doing once a day. He's gonna be doing three 10 minute walks. He's gonna be standing on one leg. He's gonna do very non invasive exercises over the next little bit. And then we're gonna up his big three a little bit to twice a day. We're gonna increase his walking a little bit. And depending on how he responds, with that, we'll, we'll start increasing the demands of the exercises that we have him do and slowly ramp that up. And we'll just take what his body gives him over the next few weeks mm-hmm. and then we'll go from there. But it's important not to get back to the normal training program too quick. And that's something that we see all the time, as uh, you know, I'm sure you see it too with people mm-hmm. that are perpetually hurt over and over.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, I have some people that just hit me up every three months or so because they're back to square one again because they push pushed too hard mm-hmm.
0: and they've re-engined themselves and yep. they do it all over again. Mm-hmm. So, so for you guys that are kind of following along in uh, my back pain journey and maybe potentially have uh, injuries yourself, that kind of gives you an idea of potentially how to move forward. You have to kind of reset and start over from square one. And um, you know, obviously it takes a little bit of a unique assessment as to uh, what what causes your pain, um, and, and if you're not sure how to do that, you know you can reach out to Brian um, at his uh, Instagram. What's your Instagram? Uh, Brian Carroll thirteen oh six, and I have a website where
1: I have a hub for my content, poweractstrength mm-hmm. But to save yourself some money, so save yourself some money, <laughs> save, yourself save yourself some dang money. money. Grab back mechanic. Okay. Grab gift of injury, and okay. if you can just get it done with seventy dollars, that's lesser. Mm-hmm. That's less money than it would be for a PT appointment. Yeah, get the book, sort through them, and then if you need a consult, I'm willing to talk with you and help you. But the magic is in back mechanic and mm-hmm. the assessment, the progressions and gift of injury. That's mm-hmm. the key
0: to it. And just to just to add to that, I've you know I have a copy of the book right here. Um, Brian's give it, uh, nice enough to give me a copy. Um, and I've looked through a few of the pages from it and read some different excerpts, and just the little bit that I've kind of gleaned from it and learned from it already is I can tell that it's going to be a very, very unique and very, very interesting read. And if you're trying to, you're trying to um, get a grasp on your back pain and understand how that part of the body works a little bit better, so that you can kind of put the pieces of the puzzle together in the process of your own uh, your own rehab getting back to normal i would highly recommend uh getting both books uh, as soon as you can it's it's um, it'll make a big difference. in Just your fundamental understanding, because if there's one thing I've learned, it's that people have a hard time implementing uh, an intervention to fix a problem when they don't understand the why behind it. When you understand the why behind something, you understand how much of a big deal it actually is. And then the prioritization then subconsciously happens in your mind. Um, you know, if you just tell someone that, Oh, eat a bunch of protein every day, it'll help you build muscle. Well, they're not, that's probably not going to be their big priority because they're just gonna be like, Oh, I'm supposed to do this thing every day. But if you understand the physiology behind amino acids and protein synthesis and muscle anabolism versus catabolism, and you understand that physiologically you can't build muscle if you don't have protein, then you're probably going to be much more inclined to do that. So if you, if you understand, you know, a little bit of anatomy and physiology, if you understand a little bit of the mechanics behind the annulus and and the nucleus and, you know, discompression and extension and flexion, if you understand shear forces, you know, if you understand some of these things about the body, even if you're not a medical professional, even if you're a a banker or an accountant, it's going to, it's going to stick in your head a little bit better and you're going to find it much more, Um, easy and you're going to be much more consistent with adherence to this whole process. Um, But I, am I'm really happy. uh, I got to sit down with you, Brian. This has been a really good talk. I really think a lot of people are going to um, gain a lot of insight from this episode and hopefully they'll end up buying the book um, to where they can learn even a lot more. But I know, you know, just from the post I did the other day, there were a lot of people, a lot of people, Uh, deal with this kind of injury you know low back pain is one of the most prevalent injuries you know in the world in the united states um in athletes and it's probably one of the most frustrating things to happen um just because that area is has it's such a it's such a hub for any force transfer that goes through your body so it's so extremely difficult to give it time to rest as opposed to like your arm or your shoulder or something and you can just rest it 24 7 um so once again uh uh brian you have your instagram your website you mentioned uh, gift of injury back mechanic go go to his website check it out guys um, um pick up a copy uh if you like this episode like share subscribe tag us in it hope you guys enjoyed it um and that is it for today take it easy everyone